we present Testament of Freedom, a study of the traditions and ideas which led to the rising of 1916, written by Dominic O'Riordan, with personal recollections of the leaders and their teachings, contributed by Sean McGarry, Cahal O'Shannon and Desmond Ryan. Testament of Freedom. Easter week has put an end to all the talk of why and why, to years of empty argument, for 16 men have gone to die. Many things fill in the time, but in time's fullness men stand up, and empty time by raising arms, as when men empty glass or cup. In that fullness ghosts took flesh, Tone and Pierce stood side by side, Emmett stormed O'Connell Street, and Mitchell raised his arms in pride. And in the splendour of the thing, all the writing was fulfilled, and all the writing washed away when sixteen men went out and died. After the death of Parnell in 1891, the Irish people sat down to debate, to argue and to listen. The country people were beginning to taste the land rights they had recently gained. The people of Dublin met, talked and sang as they do in Joyce's Dubliners. And the Irish Parliamentary Party continued in its tone of appeasement, general acceptance and mild demand. For the tradition in Irish politics for 100 years had been a tradition of appeasement general acceptance and mild demand. The Irish Volunteers were founded in 1782 with the decided and unalterable determination to seek a redress of Irish grievances. In the words of the song, what they did was... They mustered and paraded until their laurels faded. Thus did the Volunteers. How died the Volunteers? The death that's fit for slaves, they slunk into their graves. Thus died the volunteers. Grattan, in proud and dignified tones, had continued the policy of acceptance. Speaking in 1800 on the Bill of Union, The Constitution may be for a time so lost, but the character of a country cannot be so lost. The ministers of the crown will, or perhaps at length may, learn that it is not easy to put down forever an ancient and respectable nation by abilities however great and by power and corruption however irresistible. The Act of Union was passed. This had been the tone of the Irish Parliament for most of its history. It was to be the tone of the Irish delegates to the British Parliament for many years. Daniel O'Connell was to construe the policy of acceptance and demand within the law. He said in 1843... My first object is to get Ireland for the Irish. I am content that the English should have England. But 
They have had the domination of this country too long, and it is time that the Irish should at length get their own country. Old Ireland and liberty. That is what I am struggling for. What I want you to do is to join me in looking for appeal. I know you have stout hearts, but what do I want you to do? Is it to turn into battle or war? Is it to commit riot or crime? I want you to do nothing that is not open or legal. And the famine began a few years later, and almost a million people died of hunger. In the parliamentary party and the people as a whole, the revolutionary ideal rose for a period during the land war. By 1890, they were quiet again. The talking, the debate, the argument had resumed. About all this, James Connolly said, The Boers are invulnerable on coaches. The boxers are deaf on missionaries. But we are irresistible on resolution. Boric Pierce was to say, The nationalist movement in Ireland has degenerated into a debating society. The answer to the prolonged debate was given in a simple, effective statement in arms, Easter week, 1916, when Boric Pierce read at the door of the GPO Dublin to a cold, unenthusiastic crowd of passers-by who cheered perfunctorily the proclamation of independence. Irish men and Irish women, in the name of God and of the dead generations from which she receives her old tradition of nationhood, Ireland, through us, summons her children to her flag and strikes for her freedom. We declare the rights of the people of Ireland to the ownership of Ireland. The proclamation's ancestry stretched far back in history. Its first parent was Wolf Tone, whose influence had lived through the rebellion of 98. Tone said, To break the connection with England, the never-failing source of all our political evils, and to assert the independence of my country, these were my objects. To unite the whole people of Ireland, to abolish the memory of all past dissensions, and to substitute the common name of Irish men in the place of the denominations of Protestant, Catholic, and Dissenter. These were my aims. Our independence must be had at all hazards. If the men of property will not support us, they must fall. Touch the rising of 1916 at any point, 
and you touch 98, and you touch the rebellion of 1803. The words of the proclamation which Emmett spoke to his followers, many of them 98 men, in a depot in Thomas Street, Dublin, 23rd of July, 1803, have the colouring and force of the words of the 1916 proclamation. Emmett said, You are now called upon to show the world that you are competent to take your place among nations, that you have a right to claim their recognizance of you as an independent country. Our object is to establish a free and independent republic in Ireland, fully impressed with the justice of our cause, which we now put to the issue, we make our last and solemn appeal to the sword and to heaven, and as the cause of Ireland deserves to prosper, may God give us victory. Thomas Davis and the writers of the Nation newspaper were, in the words of Pierce, to give the moment towards the rising of 1916, its spiritual and imaginative parts. It was given part of its dynamism by the words of Thomas Francis Marr when he spoke in Dublin in 1846 on O'Connell's peace resolution. The man that will listen to reason, let him be reasoned with. But it is the weaponed arm of the patriot that can alone avail against armed despotism. I do not hold the sword as a model. God's almighty hand has ever been stretched forth to consecrate the flag of freedom, to bless the patriot sword. Be it for the defense or the assertion of a nation's liberty, I look upon the sword as a sacred weapon. Out of the 1848 movement developed the Fenians and the Irish Republican Brotherhood. The Fenians were founded in New York by John O'Mahony, the IRB by James Stevens, who established a centre in Dublin on St. Patrick's Day, 1858, and organized centers throughout the country in a tour of 1858-59. In Skibbereen, Jeremiah O'Donovan Rossa was enrolled in the movement. Fenianism had European connections with the 1848 revolutionaries, with the Chartists, with the First International, but it quickly shed its foreign origins and remained always a distinctly Irish force. The Fenian oath was proud and direct, I, in the presence of Almighty God, do solemnly swear allegiance to the Irish Republic, now virtually established, and that I will do my utmost at every risk while life lasts to defend its independence and integrity, and finally, that I will yield implicit obedience in all things not contrary to the laws of God to the commands of my superior officers. Fenianism could be proscribed by the government, condemned by the bishops as a secret organization, denounced by Cardinal Cullen, criticized by Karl Marx, suffer failure in the rising of 67. Its leaders could be seized, imprisoned and exiled. It could suffer internal dissension. It could break out restlessly into many small movements. It could decline until in the end of the 19th century it was said that its whole membership could have been comprised in a concert hall. Yet it held alive throughout all the years of waiting for the rising a pure, hard flame of revolutionary nationalism. It threw up mighty, magnificent men of the caliber of Jeremiah O'Donovan Rosser, John Devoy, John O'Leary, and James Stevens. 
It was a movement about which ballads were made. Some years ago I drew the plan and figure of a certain blade. I gave it to a proper man and very soon the thing was made. The crook was light and very neat. The point was sharp, the hilt was strong. It only lacked to be complete. An ashen handle ten feet long. I got the ashen handle too. I scraped and filed it down with care and never said that it would do until it fitted to a hair. And then I laid it safely by where naught could wrap or twist it wrong until the time should come when I would want my handle ten feet long. Alas, that time it never came, but in when hope had died away, was not without a sense of shame I took it down again one day I sadly twisted out the screws that bound it to a hilt so strong and turned to some that glorious handle ten feet long. But yet I always kept the blade, and now I think tis just the time to get another handle made. The fit as good, the stuff as prime. I'll advertise for such a thing and hope to have my choice among the bundles that my call will bring. Say twice ten thousand ten feet long. All the signatories to the proclamation of 1916 were at the time of the rising members of the military council of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. It was the Fenian program that was being carried out. Pierce said in his burial oration at the grave of O'Donovan Rosser, and if there is anything that makes it fitting that I, rather than some other, 
rather than one of the gray-haired young men who were young with him and shared in his labor and in his suffering should speak here, it is perhaps that I may be taken as speaking on behalf of a new generation that has been rebaptized in the Fenian faith and that has accepted the responsibility of carrying out the Fenian program. Throughout all the years, Fenianism abided in Dublin in the person of Thomas J. Clark. At 17, he was a member of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. At 22, he was sentenced to penal servitude for life. He was released after 15 years, most of which had been spent in solitary confinement. In silence and slow time, the Fenian flame had been nurtured in him. It was burning furiously on his release. To his shop in Parnell Street, a few hundred yards from the GPO, one by one, all the men of the Rising came. Particularly, Sean MacDiarmada came. MacDiarmada had been pupil teacher, tram conductor and barman in both Glasgow and Belfast. By way of the Gaelic League, the GAA, the Dungannon Clubs and Sinn Féin, he joined the Irish Republican Brotherhood. On the 15th of November, 1910, the publication of Irish Freedom, managed by MacDiarmada, commenced. The opening editorial said simply, We stand for the complete and total separation of Ireland from England. Thomas Clark said of it, At last we see tangible results from the patient, plodding work of sowing the seed. The tide is running strongly in our direction. We have the rising generation. In this way was born the second sentence of the proclamation. Having organized and trained her manhood through her secret revolutionary organization, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, and through her open revolutionary organizations, the Irish Volunteers and the Irish Citizen Army, having patiently perfected her discipline, as the living link with the great period of Fenianism, Clark was the father of the proclamation. To talk about him and Sean MacDiarmada is Sean McGarry, who knew them both. To us, who have had the privilege of knowing and working with Tom Clark, it seems strange that besides being unfortunate in his biographer, he has been sadly neglected by the various scribes who have written about 1916. For there can be no doubt that he was the inspiration and the mainspring of the movement which led up to the Rising. The prestige which came to him from the fact that he'd been sentenced to life imprisonment before most of us were born brought us to him, and the fact that we found him bright, eager and enthusiastic held us. He was our living link with Fenianism, having been sworn into the IRB by John Daly of Limerick in 1879 and he still retained his youthful vigour and his belief in physical force as the only solution of what was then called the Irish question. The humiliation he felt at the failure of what he called his own generation to take advantage of the Boer War to make a fight never left him. And, as it were a personal responsibility, he devoted his life to the task of proving to the world once again that there were still Irish men ready to fight and die for Ireland. To him, a rising was not only desirable, it was inevitable. And outside his family, all his thoughts were in that direction. His prayer, like that of Mitchell, may well have been, send us war in our time, O Lord. 
His attitude to Sinn Féin was tolerant because it meant bringing home the members of Parliament from Westminster, and his respect for Griffith at this time was tempered by his doubts about Griffith's republicanism and his belief that he and his immediate associates would not fight for any reason, and he had no use for passive resistance. For Gaelic leaguers as Gaelic leaguers only, he had very little use, as he believed with some reason perhaps, that they were mostly a dilettante crowd who counted for nothing in the struggle for independence. His shop in Amiens Street and later in Parnell Street became the mecca of believers in Fenianism from all parts of Ireland. And to everybody his conversation brought a ray of hope. Here came about the end of 1907 or beginning of 1908 Sean McDermott and two kindred spirits met. McDermott had been appointed organiser of the Sinn Féin League, a separatist organisation that had been formed by the amalgamation of the Dungannon Club and Cumannan Ale under the ages of the IRB. Now a few words about McDermott. He, like Tom Clark, set out to become a school teacher, but by coincidence left for almost similar reasons as Tom. He came to Belfast in 1905 with the intention of emigrating but changed his mind and became a tram conductor, which position he lost because of speeches made in public in the streets in Belfast. I met him in 1906 and we became fast friends. I was authorised to approach him with the view to his initiation into the IRB. He was sworn in in 1907. McDermott was one of the most lovable characters imaginable. His gentle manners, genial smile and patent sincerity won everybody. He became known throughout the country from Donegal to Cork. His energy was amazing and his capacity for work tremendous. He, however, overdid it and suffered a severe breakdown which left him with the lameness which more or less kept him confined to Dublin. This brought himself and Tom Tark closer together and then things began to happen. First, Irish Freedom was established with McDermott as manager and subsequently to become editor as well. Then came the cleaning up of the IRB on whose Supreme Council there were still some of the men who were responsible for the failure during the Boer War. They next started the Irish Volunteers, though several people thought otherwise. It was slowly and deliberately they set about sounding different people about coming on the first provisional committee. It was designed to form a cross-section of what was called nationalist opinion at the time. It was not easy, but it was carried out successfully. The split came and the Redmanites were ousted and only a fraction of the original members were left. They were all staunch, however. War broke out and it became a certainty that something would happen before its conclusion. It was then that Pierce, Plunkett, Connolly and Kent were brought on to the military committee of the IRB. Whoever may have had thoughts about fighting, it is certain that it was on the initiation of these two men that the decision was made. It was hard and uphill work, and mistakes may have been made, but the war was not going to last forever, and there was no time to be lost. So came 1916, and these two proud men marched with heads high into the GPO. They had achieved that for which they had planned and plotted, and I am certain that they walked proudly to their deaths, believing, as they always maintained, that no rising in Ireland ever was a failure. The social problem in Ireland has two aspects, an urban and a rural. 
Michael Davitt and James Connolly were keenly aware of the distinctive problems involved in each. A great deal of the thinking of both men derived from James Finton Lawler, of whom Pierce said, Lawler is the immediate ancestor of the specifically democratic part of the modern movement, embodied today in the more virile labor organizations. Lawler wrote in 1848, We have to organize a new mode and condition of labor, a new industrial system, to frame and fix a new order in society, to give to Ireland a new social constitution under which the natural capacity of the country would be put into effective action. Political rights are but paper and parchment. It is the social condition that determines the condition and character of a people and moulds the lives of the men. In 1848, Finton Lawler outlined his policy. On a wider fighting field, with stronger positions and greater resources than are afforded by the paltry question of repeal, must we close for our final struggle with England or sink and surrender? Ireland, her own, from the sod to the sky, the soil of Ireland for the people of Ireland from God alone who gave it, to have and to hold to them and their heirs forever, without suit or service, faith or fealty, rent or render, to any power under heaven. The Land League was largely of Fenian origin. It was founded in 1879 in Castle Bar by Michael David, a Fenian who had served seven years of his 15 years prison service. He saw in the land question what Lawler had seen. The land question contains, and the legislative question does not contain, the material from which victory is obtained. In the new departure, the parliamentary party under Parnell joined forces with most of the Fenians under the Land League. It was a holy war against a system, the aim of which, it was said, was to shoot landlordism in Ireland, not landlords. David was conscious that you had to link the political question to the social. He said the aim was not the land alone, but was an open participation in public movement in Ireland by extreme men, but with a view to bringing an advanced nationalist spirit and revolutionary purpose into Irish life. The Land League's sons were national. Michael David called the following the Marseillaise of the Land Revolution. God who made us all, the Signor and the Serf, rise up and swear this day to hold your own green Irish turf. Rise up and plant your feet as men, while now you crawl as slaves, and make your harvest field your camp, or make of it your grave. David could write in 1890 that the end of land acquisition was in sight. The Land League found the Irish peasant a virtual slave on the land of Ireland. It rooted him in the soil on which he was but a rent-earning machine and has given him a right of property whence he was previously but a trespasser. The joining of all strands of Irish society in the Land League was the first sign of that unity in diversity that met in the men of the Rising. The people of the country had been prepared by it for the revolution. James Connolly was to prepare the people of the cities. The fullness of time was at hand. 
revolutionary theory has always been inevitably inseparable from revolutionary practice. James Connolly had learned the lesson of the Land League. Landlordism was not abolished by the mere presence of 85 spouters in the British House of Commons. The people met all the combined forces of landlordism and the British Crown and tore a measure of social freedom and economic security from their reluctant grasp. The Irish parliamentarians met the British politicians on their own chosen field of battle and lost every move. James Connolly had been a corporation dustman in Edinburgh, a printer's devil, a worker in a mosaic factory, a tramp, a peddler, a socialist candidate in Scotland, and lastly, an organiser for the new Irish Republican Socialist Party. In 1903, he went to America, but returned to Ireland in 1910. He was conscious but chary of the eventual liaison he knew had to come between Labour and nationalism. Writing in The Workers' Republic in 1900, he said, The mere fact that the inherited and often unreasoning anti-British sentiment of a chauvinist Irish patriot impels him to the same conclusion as we arrived at as a result of our studies does not cause us to shrink from our position. In 1913 was the Great Strike. Gradually it spread until 37 unions were involved and thousands of workers. There were riots and baton charges. Many were injured, some killed, and James Larkin was arrested. Connolly was sentenced to three months' imprisonment. At his trial, Connolly said, If you deprive the people of peaceable means of settling their difficulties, you will drive them to revolutionary methods. When it comes to a choice between what is legal and what is right, the people will choose. Out of the strike was born the Irish Citizen Army. Jim Larkin was its first leader. Connolly became commandant. The Irish Citizen Army in its constitution pledges its members to fight for a republican freedom in Ireland. Its members are therefore of the number who believe that at the call of duty they may have to lay down their lives for Ireland. That at the worst, the laying down of their lives should constitute the starting point of another glorious tradition. A tradition that will keep alive the soul of the nation. Connolly was disillusioned by the outbreak of World War I. Part of the general socialist credo was an optimistic belief that socialism would prevent war, that labor would not march against labor, or working class fight working class. Universal socialism had, he thought, failed, and Connolly's writings became more urgent and more nationalistic. If you are itching for a rifle, itching for a fight, have a country of your own. If ever you shoulder a rifle, let it be for Ireland. You have been told that you are not strong, that you have no rifles. Revolutions do not start with rifles. Start first and get your rifles after. Later, he said, developing David's teaching, The cause of labor is the cause of Ireland. The cause of Ireland is the cause of labor. They cannot be dissevered. The Irish Republican Brotherhood were determined on understanding Connolly's position and enforced a meeting with him. Pierce, Plunkett and McDonough discussed a rising with him. 
On the 5th of February, Connolly was co-opted a member of the Military Council of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Was it during these days the social teaching of the proclamation was written? The allegiance of every Irish man and Irish woman. The Republic guarantees religious and civil liberty, equal rights and equal opportunities to its citizens, and declares its resolve to pursue the happiness and prosperity of the whole nation and of all its parts cherishing all the children of the nation equally and oblivious of the differences carefully fostered by an alien government which have divided a minority from a majority in the past. The proclamation set out with simplicity and great dignity the fundamental political rights of man. James Connolly had certainly contributed to its formulation. In it was concentrated his talking, waiting and teaching and he also asserted this teaching in arms. Carl O'Shannon will speak of James Connolly, man, realist, and idealist. Connolly was an Irishman and of working-class stock. It was these origins that shaped his political and social outlook. They made him from early years not only socialist and republican, but as well Irish separatist and ally of the only real nationalists, whose aim and purpose was to break the connection with England. He would have been socialist and revolutionary anywhere. He was happiest uh, when he was these in Ireland. He was a strong, unbreakable link in the chain of revolutionary continuity. He derived from the United Irishmen and their connections with the French Revolution, and from every movement of revolt in Ireland before and after them. From them he moved forward in studiously reasoned sympathy and understanding to Emmet, to peasant raisings on the land, to trade unionist struggles in the towns, to Lawler, the Chartists and early Irish socialists, and again to the Fenians and their revolutionary contacts in Europe. And through the Land League, he knew Devitt in Scotland and Ireland, worked with him sometimes, criticised him at others, and on to the Ireland of 50 and 40 years ago, with its hopes and promise of resurgence in the working class and in the militant elements in Sinn Féin and the Gaelic League. And through them all he was the realist, with no illusions, least of all, he said, illusions about freedom. He had no comradeship or use for people who didn't mean business. And he looked back to the conquest of Gaelic Ireland and its Gethsemane after Conceal and the Boyne. He saw that the conquest was social as well as political, that the conquest of Irish liberties had come through the conquest of Irish lands, and that this dual conquest had created landlordism in rural Ireland and industrial wage slavery in the towns. The reconquest, the revolution he worked for, must necessarily in modern conditions be economic as well as political. National independence alone wouldn't be full or satisfying without social freedom. And from his thorough examination of the facts, not the romances of history, he convinced himself that for regaining the ownership of Ireland and Irish liberties, the Irish people were justified in using whatever means and whatever weapons they could at any time command. One of these means, these weapons, organised armed force, he unhesitatingly 
but with deliberate conviction advocated when opportunity for its exercise should present itself. A war he held that would tax the utmost resources of the British Empire would present the fitting occasion and circumstance for insurrection. In 1914, war with precisely the requirements he had visualised years before was to come. Now to Connolly, national independence and social freedom were not two, but one and indivisible, his republic and his commonwealth. It was that conception of his that distinguished him in Ireland in the years before and after I enjoyed his friendship from 1910 onwards. And it was something of that conception that marked his influence upon Pierce and found eloquent expression in the proclamation. Before I met him, I had found it in his reprints from the United Irishmen, in his alliance with John O'Leary and the Separatists in the centenary of 98, and in support of the Boers in the South African War, and again in his writings in Alice Milligan's Shan Van Vocht at home, and his own paper, The Harp in America. To Connolly, the Irish Citizen Army and the Irish Volunteers were, in the circumstances of 1914-1916, the weapon, the means to an end, not the end itself. The end was the overthrow of the existing political, social and economic system in Ireland. And they held that the act of overthrowing that system wouldn't be the revolution. The revolution could come only when the act of overthrowing the prevailing system had been accomplished. He had said that ten years before the insurrection, and he had said it because he was a revolutionist, not simply a rebel. It was altogether in character then with him when, on the eve of the war in 1914, he said to me in the Transport Union office in Belfast, twice before the opportunity for a fight against the Empire came in my time, but it wasn't taken. But, and he spoke with great passion and awful solemnity, by God, I won't let it pass this time. And he asked me to go to the IRB leader in Belfast, Dennis McCullough, who was a member of the Supreme Council, and to tell him that he'd be going to Dublin. Ask him to put me in touch with his friends. Never mind about the formalities. In this business, at this time, I'm willing to take a score of oaths if they want me. And from that day, until he marched from Liberty Hall to the General Post Office, on that historic Easter Monday, Connolly bent, bent his energies, his determination, his splendid talents, and his gifts of leadership and decision, and the Citizen Army and his own paper, The Workers' Republic, to the practical business of organising insurrection with or without allies at home or abroad. And in February 1916, after he had come to final agreement, with the secret military council, Connolly told me that the date had been fixed, that it wasn't as soon as he would have liked. But, said he, it is fixed and it will do. And it did. The rising of 1916 was above all a conscious and deliberate act. 
Its motives had been explained over many years, its purpose clarified, its manner made explicit. Never was a revolution less casual. It had as a kind of subconscious an immense body of literature. Irish nationality had been preserved in all the poetry of the 19th century, in the strength of Mangum, in Ferguson, through whom Irish myth spoke. Irish folklore preserved a tradition of separation. Political journals began to spring up around 1900. The United Irishman, edited by Arthur Griffith, the leader by D.P. Moran, the Republic by Bulmer Hobson, the Peasant by Liam O'Rean, Irish Worker by James Larkin, and Bar Boer by Porrick Pierce, Era by Pierce Baisley. Eru, published by the School of Irish Learning, was bringing before Ireland and the world the richness of early Irish spirituality, myth, and literature. The Irish Review related Ireland to the main body of European culture. An Irish National Literary Society was founded in 1892. John O'Leary, the Fenian, was first president. In 1899, the Irish Literary Theatre was founded. In 1904, the Abbey Theatre. Out of the intellectual ferment came two of the signatories of the proclamation, Thomas McDonagh and Joseph Plunkett. They were both poets, both intellectuals. Both had travelled and known many languages. Both were interested in Irish. In 1908, Thomas McDonough, who was a teacher, had associated with Pierce in the founding of Skull Emma. He was an apostle of the earlier literature on Gage. It is well for us that our workers are poets and our poets workers. And it is well too that here still that cause which is identified without underthought of commerce with the cause of God and right of freedom, the cause which has been the great theme of our poetry, may one day call the poets to give their lives in the old service. Joseph Plunkett had read extensively in philosophy and mysticism. Teresa Vivia, John of the Cross, St. Thomas Aquinas, Towler helped to shape and fashion his mind. He expressed his mysticism simply. I see his blood upon the rose, and in the stars the glory of his eyes, his body gleams amid eternal snows. His tears fall from the skies. Plunkett had defined the task of the artist. The artist's task is to make others see, for all art is revelation. This he does chiefly by the great instrument of inspiration, choice. He chooses the portion or phase of truth he is to reveal. The rising was for him a way of revelation. His mysticism led directly to a belief in it. For a person to whom the world is an epiphany and for whom all creation reflects the creator, justice is an essential to be thirsted after as the proper measure of man's relationship with man. The perfect working and interrelation of society is a mirror of God's perfection. Politics are not a public utility. They are born from man's very nature. Tyranny takes away an essential right of man and is a denial of man's nature. To accept it is to give scandal. In order that a scandal and tyranny might be overthrown, Thomas McDonough and Joseph Mary Plunkett offered their own lives, accepted the way of death, and signed the proclamation.
this heritage to the race of kings, their children and their children's seed, have wrought their prophecies indeed of terrible and splendid things. The hands that fought, the hearts that broke, in old immortal tragedies, they have not failed beneath the skies, their children's heads refuse the yoke. With the foundation of the Gaelic League in 1893, it was clear that the fullness of time was at hand. Pierce summed up this feeling. A new junction has been made with the past. Into the movement that has never wholly died since 67 have come the young men of the Gaelic League. Having renewed communion with its origins, Irish nationalism is today a more virile thing than ever before in our time. I have said again and again that when the Gaelic League was founded in 1893, the Irish Revolution began. Dr. Douglas Hyde had stated at an address in 1892, The Ireland of today is the descendant of the Ireland of the 7th century, but we have at last broken the continuity of Irish life. The old bricks that lasted 1,800 years are destroyed if we must now set to to bake new ones, if we can, on other ground and of other clay. Branches of the Gaelic League were established all over the country. Some were founded on existing nationalist organizations, some were independent, but all provide a nucleus around which nationalist organizations could gather and receive impetus and strength. Thomas Ashe was to express what the nationalist mind felt later about the League. We intend to preach such teaching as will make the Gaelic League a resourceful novitiate for societies who want freedom and who mean to get it by the only means that men worthy of freedom ever thought of attaining such. Pierce was far more clear-sighted when he said in November 1913, I have come to the conclusion that the Gaelic League, as the Gaelic League, is a spent force. The vital work to be done in the new island will be done not so much by the Gaelic League itself as by the men and women that have sprung from the League. The Gaelic League was no reed shaken by the wind. It was a prophet and more than a prophet, but it was not the Messiah. The deed of the generation that has now received middle life was the Gaelic League. The beginning of the Irish Revolution is the work of this generation. Pierce had an instinct for evaluating accurately the worth of an organization. To him, an organization was a book which, when you understood as far as possible, you put away. He was primarily a teacher, and the rising was, in the original sense of the word, education, a leading out, a leading out from ignorance and apathy. He was making explicit what he had suggested. He was confirming what he had taught. The writing was being fulfilled, and the writing washed away. 
In other men were also the impetuousness of the rising, the spiritual, the social, the language, and the national in John O'Mahony and O'Donovan Rossa, but never so fused and jointed, never so intense as in Pierce. He was a man to whom a country had spoken. In him you can see developing the line of Irish history stretching back to St. Patrick on the one hand, pagan saga on the other, and coming back through the centuries of conquest, development and revolt. Now should be joined to then. Nothing good should be lost or put aside. History was a living, continuing thing. The evil was to destroy that living thing. There was great danger in the destruction of that life, and with it the spirit, the heroism, the language and the voice of a great people. Of tone, he said, Though many have died before him, and some since have died in testimony of the truth of Ireland's claim to nationhood, Wolf Tone was the greatest of all that have made that testimony, the greatest of all that have died for Ireland. He had said of Emmett, We have almost forgotten our heroes who were faithful even to the ignominy of the gallows, dying that their people might live, even as Christ died. Emmett's attempt was not a failure, but a triumph for that deathless thing we call Irish nationality. Each man developed and continued the tradition of Davis. Pierce said, Davis was a separatist. He held the nationalist position which Tone held, which Lawler and Mitchell held, which the Irish volunteers hold. Of the Fenians, he said, at the graveside of O'Donovan Rossa, speaking, as Desmond Ryan said, with slow and intense delivery, with feeling, but rather subdued, until those closing lines where he cries aloud upon the fool. There, Pierce threw back his head sharply, and the tone and expression seemed to vivify his whole speech, which ended calmly and proudly. Our foes are strong and wise and wary, but strong and wise and wary as they are, they cannot undo the miracles of God who ripens in the hearts of young men the seed sown by the young men of a former generation. And the seeds sown by the young men of 65 and 67 are coming to their miraculous ripening today. Rulers and defenders of realms had need to be wary if they would guard against such processes. Life springs from death, and from the souls of patriot men and women spring living nations. The defenders of this realm have worked well in secret and in the open. They think that they have pacified Ireland. They think that they have purchased half of us and intimidated the other half. But the fools, the fools, the fools, they have left us our Fenian dead. And while Ireland holds these graves, Ireland unfree, shall never be at peace. In the sovereign people, a philosophic study of 150 years of Irish political thought, Pierce sums up the spiritual, intellectual, social, and imaginative forces that led to the rising, the four gospels leading to the one truth. The movements I have indicated are but facets of a whole, different expressions, and each one a necessary expression of the august though denied truth of Irish nationhood. Nationhood 
in virtue of an old spiritual tradition of nationality, nationhood involving separation and sovereignty, nationhood resting on and guaranteeing the freedom of all the men and women of the nation and placing them in effective possession of the physical conditions necessary to the reality and to the perpetuation of this freedom. Nationhood declaring and establishing and defending itself by the good smiting sword. I, who have been in and out of each of these movements, make here the necessary synthesis. And in the name of all of them, I assert the forgotten truth and ask all who, who accept it to testify it with me here in our day and, if need be, with our blood. The preparation had been long and arduous. Many men, many movements, many events had contributed to that preparation. But Pierce had plowed the last furrow and the fields were ready for sowing. The rising was on. Poor Rick Pierce is to us the man, myth and symbol of the rising. Desmond Ryan, who knew him, will discuss the man called Pierce and the part played by him in the rising. The rising produced at least one work of art, and it stands on the very spot where Pierce made his last stand. This statue of the dying Cuhullen, with the crouching raven on his shoulder, and beneath the words of the 1916 proclamation, symbolizes the spirit and the life and the death of Pierce. His farewell message to his mother was soon known. This is the death I would have asked for if God had given me the choice of all deaths, to die a soldier's death for Ireland and for freedom. It was only 30 years after his execution that the words of his court-martial speech were made public. One passage of that speech runs, We went into the fight. I am glad we did. We seem to have lost. We have not lost. To refuse to fight would have been to lose. The fight is to win. We have kept faith with the past and handed on a tradition to the future. You cannot conquer Ireland. You cannot extinguish the Irish passion for freedom. If our deed has not been sufficient to win freedom, our children will win it by a better deed. The president of the court-martial, Colonel Blackadder, was much moved by Pierce's speech and deeply depressed, told his friend Lady Fingall the same evening, I have just done one of the hardest things I have ever had to do. I have had to condemn to death one of the finest characters I have ever come across. There must be something very wrong in the state of things that makes a man like that a rebel. I don't wonder that his pupils adored him. Certainly uh, Pierce's pupils adored him. And within a month of Pierce's execution, all Ireland and many in lands beyond Ireland were well on the way to adoring Pierce too. Macdonough's friend, James Stevens the poet, in those days was somewhat puzzled that of all the Easter week leaders, Pierce seemed to strike the popular imagination as personifying the revolt. Yet Stevens admitted as he thought it over that there was some strange personal power in Pierce that explained this choice even if Stevens himself admired Connolly more and liked Macdonough better than this aloof headmaster. And indeed, at first meeting and in public, Pierce was outwardly somewhat cold and aloof. 
until he mounted a platform or entered a classroom. Or talked in the Irish he loved best with his friends on the Connemara Road or in the little towns of Connaught, to which almost his last thoughts went. There was a deep sympathy and kindliness in this man and a spirit of rare charity which went out even to those who fought against him that made him, however sorrowfully, salute the sincerity of those of his ex-pupils, and there were some, who marched away to fight, as they believed, for Irish freedom under the Allied flags in the Great War, that made him sue the wounded British soldier to sleep in the Moor Street headquarters as Maxwell's cordons closed in during the last hours of the Rising. To those of us who were with Pierce in 1916, the memory of him always returns whenever we enter the central hall at the general post office. There he stands in his green uniform, as the fires glare in on the silent garrison, listening to him speaking of the insurrection, which has made Dublin one of the immortal cities of history. Later in private, Pierce gives his opinion with a quiet pride that Emmett's two-hour adventure has been quite put in the shade this time. Once, as he looks out into the Dublin night, as the volleys roll out beyond the circling fires, stealing closer to the headquarters, he answers his own question. It was the right thing to do, wasn't it? Yes. In a few years they will see the meaning of what we tried to do, although at first they will blame us. The British gunners at last land petrol shells on the post office roof and Pierce watches the desperate fight of the men with axe, bucket and hose as the fire spreads through the building. A bullet strikes the wall above his head and he escapes death by an inch. And so on and on until Pierce walks out to surrender with the calm certainty in his eyes of the lines of his own poem. The Huggis Magnoosh, Aaron Roadshaw Roam, Aaron Neve the Chiam, Zan Moss the Yohit. I have turned my face to this road before me, to the deed that I see and the death I shall die. In this supreme hour, the Irish nation must, by its valor and discipline, and by the readiness of its children to sacrifice themselves for the common good, prove itself worthy of the august destiny to which it is called. Signed on behalf of the provisional government, Thomas J. Clark, Sean McThamother, Thomas McDonough, Patrick Pierce, Eamon Keount, James Connolly, Joseph Plunkett. That was Testament of Freedom, a study of the traditions and ideas which led to the rising of 1916. The cast was as follows. Porrick Pierce was played by Frank O'Dwyer, James Connolly by John Stevenson, Joseph Plunkett by George Green, Thomas McDonough, Brendan Burke, Thomas J. Clark, Lionel Day, Sean McDiarmother, Arthur O'Sullivan. Eamon Kelly played Daniel O'Connell, Seamus Ford, Finton Lawler, Thomas Studley, Douglas Hyde, 
Chris Curran, Wolf Tone. The singer was Liam DeValley and the accompanist Kathleen Watkins. The narrators were Dennis Brennan and Charles McCarthy. The script was written by Dominic O'Riordan and production was by Seamus Branagh.